Gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome to the latest edition of Corner Kick. There is just so much that went on in the past, you know, 10 days since we last recorded an episode from misadventures in UEFA registration to fans storming the training ground to referees mistakenly sending off not one but two players in two different games. There's a lot to discuss. I am Nathan Strauss, joined as always by Caleb Rhodes. Hello. And Nick Govinden. What's going on, everyone? It's good to be with you all again. I feel like it's been a while. It, it has been, you know, a little over a week. And it's been a busy week, too, because of the midweek games. But we figured we would start with something a little bit different and a little bit hilarious and a little bit sad coming from Amsterdam. And, you know, we talk about Ajax a little bit on this show, obviously. They're traditionally thought of as one of the more well-run clubs in all of Europe, I would say. You know, they were really the pioneers of the director of football position. They obviously have been credited for many sorts of uh, managerial uh, influence over the course of their history, but they've had some bad stuff going on as well. And so let's just do a brief recap of their month of January, um, <laughs> if you will. So it all started out when Quincy Promise got released from the police for allegedly stabbing his cousin at a barbecue. I forgot and, about and that. And somehow that's not even like the most noteworthy story. Like that, it started off with him, you know, being taken into custody and then released. So you know what? Right. That's just one scandal. Believe it or not. Ajax splashed out a record transfer fee, 22 million euros or thereabouts on West Ham flop, but former Eintracht Frankfurt star Sebastian Haller only to subsequently forget to include him in their Europa League squad, meaning that he'll be ineligible for their European adventures for uh, the rest of the season. Originally, Ajax tried to blame UEFA for the mistake, and then yesterday they came out and said that it was an internal error in sort of classic football manager style. But wait, there's more. This morning, I woke up to see that on the front page of Reddit, it was Ajax's star goalie, Andre Onana, who had been given a one-year ban by UEFA for doping. So all in all, a pretty shambolic uh, month for Ajax, not to mention the fact that their star youth striker, Brian Brabi, a Mino Raiola client, um, turned down a contract and is going to end up joining Dortmund at the end of the season. Pretty, pretty abysmal stuff uh, from a generally well-run club. Wait, quick question on Brabi. Is Holland also a Rayola client? I think so. Yes. So does this mean that Holland is leaving in the summer? I would imagine that he could get, Rayola could get a bigger agent's fee for Holland this summer than he could when his release clause gets activated in two years. Yeah, he's just going to go to City. That that's the that's the word on the street. Or Chelsea. Chelsea is also pushing really hard to sign Holland. But back to Holland. Uh, oh God! Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well done. So, no, I appreciated it. I appreciated it. Listen, this is quick thinking on your feet. This is the kind of quick thinking that Ajax needed to do when they're submitting that registration sheet for no, the Europa League. No, Ajax needed slow thinking, institutional safeguards. Literally. Some dude was fired. He must have been. Uh, must right. have been. Yeah. Absolutely. So anyways, I mean, Andre Onana came out with a pretty 
thorough statement about what had happened. Apparently, he was looking, he was feeling unwell on October 30th and took, um, you know, a diuretic that was prescribed to his wife, thinking that it was an aspirin. Diuretics are, you know, on the list of banned substances because they can be used to mask the presence of HGH or other sort of, you know, more traditional doping things that are tested for. It's a really tough thing to process as a fan and as, you know, as the media have reported on it, because on the one hand, Onana is generally an incredibly well-liked person. He is one of few black goalies playing at an elite level and who's been very outspoken about the role of race as a goalie. Uh, and he also has a very thorough and incredibly detailed account of what caused this. And, you know, they're already, Ajax have announced that they're going to appeal this suspension. And even if it doesn't get overturned, it'll likely get reduced. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the proof is sort of in the pudding somewhat. I'm not trying to indemnify him from, you know, you are eventually responsible for what you put into your body. But I'm curious as to what you guys think. I mean, one year, one year seems like a really long time given the the circumstances. But I also don't know what the like standard response of, you know, UEFA, FIFA is when they get a test back positive for a banned substance. So I just don't know whether this is like the normal sentence for doping violation because he has to serve some time. Like he objectively like used a banned substance, even if it was accidental and even if it would not give him a competitive advantage, which he doesn't need. And it just seems harsh given the circumstances, but I just don't know how we or whether we should figure that in because he did break the rules, right? So this is tough, right? This is an extremely inconvenient situation for both Onana. It's also like you don't want to say that it's embarrassing, but it's always embarrassing when you when you pop for something regardless of the sport that you play. So I hope that we can see him playing at some point in the near future. I think a year is excessive for this type of situation. But however, if you follow... Other sports like baseball, mixed martial arts, I think this is a common trend of athletes not really being totally cognizant or aware of what supplements they're using, what's in their supplements, uh, mistaking one supplement for another supplement, and then subsequently suffering the consequences of that. So as Nathan mentioned, there is you know, maybe a bit of a, a more, more scrutiny on Onana than perhaps on other players. However, I also agree with Caleb that unfortunately this is something where he did take a banned substance. He does need to maybe take some time on the sidelines. I think the really good thing for Onana is that he's still a young goalkeeper. He's only 24 years old, so he has plenty of time to rebound from this. It is super unfortunate, however. That pretty much sums it up. Unfortunately for Ajax, they do have Martin Stecklenburg, who is, I'm sure, plenty capable um, by Eredivisie standards at the very Jesus, least. Stecklenburg is the backup keeper? That guy's still playing? Yeah, they signed him on a that free. That man is a dinosaur. I think they should honestly... Vandersar was joking about <laughs> <laughs> about maybe suiting up to uh, in the Ajax goal, given the circumstances. I think you should actually do it if Stecklenburg it is the other like, option. It would be like a FIFA Ultimate Team come to life. <laughs> he could, I mean, if Peter Cech can do it, um, well, I can't Stecklenburg, but honestly, anyway, on the way on the holler situation, I think that is just honestly so poor from Ajax to just completely, for whatever reason, omit him from your, your, your club record signing to omit him from your Europa League squad, you know, a competition that if they did win it, 
would give them quite a bit of revenue and also a passage back into the Champions League, which I imagine they'll get from winning the Eredivisie potentially. Not a great week for Ajax in terms of public perception. Yeah, unfortunately, Ajax are seven points clear in the Eredivisie with, with 12 rounds to go. So they do have a bit of a cushion. But yeah, that's it's pretty pretty embarrassing. All also, in all. it sucks for him. It sucks for his Sim Haller. Of course. I mean, it's, yeah, because yeah, I'm sure Haller was like, part of the reason he decided, you know, to go from a top five league in the Premier League to the Eredivisie was in part because he was drawn to the idea of playing, you know, in European football. I think Ajax should give him like a bonus, maybe maybe a box of chocolates. I don't know. They owe him something. Exactly. But, you know, Ajax are obviously not the only club in some uh, disarray. And fortunately, they avoided having their training ground stormed by protesters, which is what was happening in the south of France. Nick, do you want to take us through the goings-on at Marseille right now? So people want to talk about their club being in crisis all the time, right? Seemingly, that's like one of the big themes of this season. You know, we've talked about Chelsea maybe being in crisis. We've certainly talked about Arsenal maybe being in crisis at certain points this season. Barcelona, Real Madrid, et cetera, et cetera. Olympique Marseille right now are definitionally a club in total crisis, <laughs> perhaps even chaos, I would, I would say right now. I think some context on Marseille. I've been fortunate enough to visit their stadium, visit the training ground, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I, I spent some time in Marseille as well. They are perhaps some of the most passionate, potentially you could say volatile fans in Europe. They're probably the second biggest club in the country of France. And there has been some, shall we say, tension between the club ownership and the ultras of Marseille boiling over for several years now. So this all began uh, in 2016 when the club was sold to a former Los Angeles Dodgers executive who then appointed a man named Jacques-Henri Herod to become the president of Marseille. Uh, There's a few reasons why Marseille fans didn't like him. He immediately came in and disbanded one of the biggest groups of ultras. He also... Uh, has no experience in in football at all. He's never run a football club before. And to top it all off, he is a Parisian, which is a big (laughs) no-no if you're you're the president of Marseille. And also, uh, when he was appointed to the club, he didn't like the fact that Marseille employs a lot of local uh, Marseille people to support the club. And he said that that was ridiculous. So he began replacing them with employees from you know all over Europe, all over the country. Well, did you see his reasoning for that? His reasoning for that was because because all the employees were so personally invested in the club. When the club did poorly, he noticed that the productivity of like the administrative <laughs> office was less, and so he, being like, a, I think he also has like a Harvard MBA. Like he's yes, a very he business person. He also described the main competition of Marseille, the club as like Netflix because he views the club purely as like an entertainment platform. So I think there's a lot of cultural and kind of, you know, ideas about what the club is, but sorry to interrupt you, Nick. So that all boiled over into this week when about 300 Marseille fans walked from the city center to the Marseille training ground to sort of display their, their collective displeasure at the club's situation, their direction. They carried signs that said like a road out and just simply read one of the signs 
<laughs> and in order to do that, uh, unfortunately, these protesters turn into rioters when 50 of them stormed the training ground. Apparently, they smashed windows. They absolutely trashed the training ground, the living area for a bunch of the players because there's a there's an the Marseille's training ground is relatively new and there's a whole like living area for international players. Uh, they attacked Marseille defender Alvaro Gonzalez, who came down from said living area to try and calm the fans down. And he was hit in the back by a projectile. Um, Andre Villas-Boas was attacked. His briefcase was stolen and the contents of which were like dumped all over the place and were also stolen. And, and unsurprisingly, uh, 25 of these rioters were arrested. 14 of them were prosecuted. And this is a stain on the club. Uh, Andre Villas-Boas, who you probably know from his time managing Chelsea and his time managing Tottenham, he has tried to resign from his job this week, especially after his own disagreements with Erod. There's been a lot of tension surrounding signings. In fact, uh, Morgan Sanson left for Aston Villa in the January window, and Erod uh, signed Oliver Ncham from Celtic, who was a signing that Andre Villas-Boas didn't want. He communicated that he did not want the transfer, but the transfer went through anyways, and he found out via social media. So because of that disconnect, he decided to resign. However, uh, Marseille made it impossible for him to resign. Instead, they fired him after suspending him for trying to resign. Uh, Andre Villas-Boas also had a pretty fiery press conference, threw his cards on the table. I respected him a lot for the way that he handled it, essentially saying that, like, listen, like, I wasn't involved in anything at this club. I learned about everything from the press. I didn't have a good relationship with the president. There's no reason why I should stay. So therefore, he left. Dude, imagine um, being imagine being Oliver and Chum, and you know having your arrival be the thing that precipitates this entire your your manager quitting. So what's next for Marseille? Let's see. Uh, they have talked to Maurizio Sarri about coming in. Uh, <laughs> shockingly, Maurizio Sarri has decided he does not want to come into Marseille at this time. I can't blame him. Uh, Rafa Benitez and Ernesto Valverde are also being talked to you about potentially coming in to sort out this mess. Yeah, but this is also like, I know this is like a very like proximate, disastrous moment for the club, but Marseille have been kind of a mess for like a few years now, like when Bielsa managed them very briefly and left as well. There's also like infighting within the team. Fias Boas told Payet that he was, you know, disappointed with his conditioning. And then Payet got angry at Fias Boas and then... Florian Tovan got angry at Payet for also not being in good conditioning. And then Payet started blaming Tovan for also not having good conditioning. So like the club is falling apart at like pretty much every level. So my question is, Marseille is a pretty rough city uh, at times. And it looks like the club is definitely reflective of, <laughs> of the city at this juncture. What do you guys make? of this situation at Marseille, and is it unlike anything you've ever seen before? It sort of reminds me a little bit of what was going on at Sporting a few years ago that led to players like Justin Martins being able to be released from their contract. <laughs> Whenever you have a fan base that's so passionate and you have an owner who is so blatantly like different from what the fans want, so different and also so... Um, I mean, he kind of rubs, he kind of rubs it in their face. Yeah, he he's not only he's not only different. He's like he's indifferent. Like he recognizes it and doesn't care. Like obviously, it's not a good look. I don't you don't want players being attacked when you know the fans storm the ground and whatnot. 
But um, there is a certain Frenchness to this whole thing that I sort of passively appreciate. I think what's really sad in all of this is that we saw people get hurt. You never want to see players get hurt like Gonzalez. You never want to see like Andre Villas-Boas, who's already like facing inner turmoil in his job, like get like his office ransacked and his like stuff stolen and have to deal with a literal riot at his workplace. So Caleb, what, what's your kind of thoughts on this? And if you were if you were running Marseille, how would you try and fix things? If I were running Marseille, I would get rid of this a rod guy, however you say it, and install some, what's someone from Marseille called? A Marseillean. Just to like appease the people. But I think what we're seeing here is obviously, you know, with COVID, with the pandemic, without fans being able to attend most games, with revenues being weighed down, it has been a tough time for sports in general. And I think particularly with, you know, ultra groups that in a lot of ways, I think there's a certain catharsis of them being able to just like yell and scream at games and get a lot of that kind of energy out. Even though, of course, you know, there have been a lot of bad moments at games too. But especially without that opportunity to sort of voice your passion in a sense at games, it's like more likely for bad events like this to boil over. Now, obviously, this is like an incredibly extreme example. And there's a lot of sort of particular cultural things that are very specific to Marseille at work here. But I think that a large part of this too is the fact that the fans probably felt like they had no recourse other than something as extreme as this. And that's not to excuse the actions at all because it's totally unacceptable and is just really disrespectful to the notion that they're even fans of this club. But I do think that there is a sort of like pressure cooker aspect to like the sociology of like a riot like this. Right. I think it comes back to like the age old question of soccer, especially as we've seen ownership groups like, you know, City, PSG come into the game. And that's Chelsea as well with Roman Abramovich. And that question is who uh, who really, quote unquote, owns the club? Like, do the fans own the club? Do the fans, the spirit of the club own the club or do the actual, you know, ownership group of the club? Is it within their rights to sort of subvert the will of the fans and do as they wish? It's sort of interesting because we talk about Barcelona a lot and they're obviously different in that they are, you know, one of the biggest clubs in the world and they're actually owned by socios. And obviously, you know, being owned by fans doesn't guarantee any sort of stability either. But it's definitely it's definitely sort of the question of this century for sure when it comes to how, you know, soccer evolves. Um with neo-corporate entities as well. But it's is this when Nathan be... brings up RV Leipzig? No, I, I wasn't I wasn't going I wasn't going to. I was just gonna I was just gonna leave it at that. But um mm. it's definitely something that we'll that we are obviously quite interested in and we talk about it a lot and we keep an eye on it. Um you know going all the way back to last spring with the Newcastle takeover. So right. um plenty of stuff to keep an eye on. But do we want to move to England where we can yeah. talk about some Before more? we go to say the reason why we bring all of this up is because Marseille play PSG in Le Classique this weekend. So it's a on the in the backdrop of in the backdrop of all of this chaos, Marseille also has their biggest game of the season. So we will see what happens. Yes, and that game was the incredibly violent game this past fall that had like <laughs> like three reds um, and led to Neymar getting injured and a a ban for um, Gonzalez and Neymar, I believe both going the opposite direction. Um, across the channel to England where there were some of the weird, it might've been the weirdest match day that I've ever seen. 
you have Arsenal Wolves and United Southampton. Which one do we want to tackle first? <laughs> let's let's literally tackle David Luiz's tackle <laughs> in uh, the Arsenal Wolves well, match. Tackle, sure. tackle in scare quotes. Exactly. Because yeah. I'm sure that, Nathan, you have some opinions on this. In my opinion, I think this was a, a banner week of poor officiating in the Premier League, in which has been like a season, a season-defining few months for where officiating is at currently in the league. Yeah. So to set the stage, Arsenal playing Wolves, they have, in my opinion, the at best the at the Molineux, Um, They have the best 45 minutes. Um, and by 45 minutes, I mean literally 45 minutes, not including added time. Um, they have the best 45 minutes of the season. They create six times as many opportunities as Wolves do. Saka hits the bar. Pepe hits the bar. Um, Saka has a goal ruled out for offsides. And Pepe scores a, his sec- for the second game in a row. A pretty nice individual effort. And it looks like, you know, Arsenal are all set to go into the half, up 1-0 with a really, really firm stranglehold on the game um, to continue their run of good form until inexplicably, you know, a a poor goal kick from Bern Leno leads to an opportunity for Wolves in which William Jose is running through on goal. William Jose, in his stride, sort of clips Louise's knee ever so slightly falls down the referee gives a penalty and a red card it's converted and you know arsenal go into the halftime locker room with a tie score but down a man and then that sort of added pressure i think contributes to burned leno's sort of inexplicable decision to just grab the ball outside the box um in the second half which would reduce arsenal to nine men but I think the most important thing is that we we break down that Louise tackle because not only should it not have been a red card, it shouldn't have even been a penalty whatsoever. Not only did Craig Pawson award the penalty on the red card, but VAR upheld it is simply astonishing to me. I don't know when the last time a refereeing decision made me that angry. What do you guys make of this whole incident? Okay. So I think here's what should have happened. Given where the referee was kind of behind the play and given that Louise and William Jose were like right on top of each other, from that angle, I think it's perfectly reasonable for the ref at first to think a foul has been committed on the last man and to give a red. But then as soon as VAR is able to look at the replay and it's abundantly clear that essentially what happened is David Louise is desperately chasing after him and William Jose happens to hit his foot on like David Luiz's knee. Like David Luiz didn't even make a tackle, right? And that trips him up. Like it wasn't a dive, but it also wasn't a foul. Um, So I think VAR got it wrong. But I think the initial instinct is probably correct that like, oh, that looks like it could have been a foul. And that's why we have VAR in theory to sort of corroborate that or not. Yeah, I think this is just another instance of the Premier League not really knowing how to successfully implement VAR and also another instance of Premier League referees just trying to cover for one another in an instance in which they've made a mistake. And fortunately, we saw, and we're going to get on to Jan Bednarik's tackle in the Manchester United game, we saw that challenge or that red card be overturned and Bednarik will be able to play. However, this is not the case for David Luiz, who unfortunately I think is also somewhat of a victim of his own reputation in this in this game. And I think that's probably why you saw the referee uh, rush to give him a red card just because we know Louise is capable of moments of madness like this. I'm not saying that this was one of those. However, this is one which he was associated in. 
I think it's really unfortunate for Arsenal, just considering that this ended a really good run of form for them in the Premier League, where they're picking up a lot of points and getting a lot of really good results and putting in some good performances. And like Nathan said, this is probably the best that I have seen them look. However, this is also a lesson for Arsenal, where Bukayo Saka hit the post in the first minute. There are a few other chances which they missed, a few other cutbacks which are put wide. So it's one of those things where it's like you need to take your chances in this league because you never know what circumstances are going to happen in the Premier League right now in order to completely change the game on its head. Yeah, absolutely. Because like on the one hand, it's always frustrating to lose, but I'd almost rather lose a game like this where there were clearly like multiple extenuating circumstances, you know, and poor officiating decisions than to get, you know, played off the park, which is what was happening you know, for the entire month of November. Big game with Villa, who are, you know, one place ahead of us in the, in the table on uh, Matt Ryan, who he brought in on loan, is going to be ready to go in goal, fortunately, as Leno and Louise serve their one-game bans. But I'm not exactly saying that this season is a lost cause by any means, but, like, I've been pretty confident since November that, you know, this team is not going to be challenging for top four and that we're going to end up finishing somewhere between, like, you know, 11th and 6th. And so a game like that is more important to me because of the just, you know, abhorrent operations of the the refereeing. I think it's important that we talk as well about United Southampton, Southampton, who found themselves for the second time in, you know, a year and a half on the wrong end of a nine goal margin of defeat. Dude, this game was so wild. I don't know why Hassenhudel just decided to tell his team to keep playing the same way they were playing when they went down to 10 men in literally the second minute. And it's even more sad because Yankowitz, who is a young 19-year-old, had been complaining about the fact that he wasn't getting minutes and was considering going out on loan. And eventually, Hassenhudel was like, you know what, I'll give you a chance. And I mean, in some sense, he took his chance. He just took it incredibly poorly. Um, with that just terrible tackle in the second minute that set them up for failure. But I don't think that's really what you guys want to talk about. Well, yeah, Weird Al Yankovic gets a little overzealous. <laughs> I mean, it was a terrible, yeah. it was genuinely a terrible tackle. Like, the, that's a straight red that you have to give. Yeah, he puts the challenge in. And I think it's important to note that Southampton had a CVS receipt list of injuries coming into this game, including, you know, Theo Walcott, uh, Yannick Vestergaard. <laughs> they had like no senior fullbacks. They had Ramsey at right back. Right, right, right. right. Ramsey at King right back. Ramsey. So it's just one of those things where I think if you're Haas and Hoodle, I would have tried to probably limit the damage once it was three or four nil, maybe even two nil. However, this was a Bielsa esque attempt at uh, avoiding damage limitation and just trying to keep the game plan intact. And I didn't think it was correct. 9-0 losses like this, or just blowouts in any sense to a young team like Southampton, could be super damaging uh, to the rest of the season. We already know that Southampton right now are not on a good run of form uh, since beating Liverpool. Wait, just to give a sense of how many injuries Southampton were contending with here, Nathan Redmond is number 11. The next lowest number of a player on the bench was 40. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I, yeah. I'm all in favor of using that as the official metric to determine uh, injuries now. I just think, well, it's just it's just so unfortunate that this happened. I really like Ralph Hasenhüttl. I think he's been one of the. 
up until up until recently, one of the managers of the season so far. I think he could still, you know, turn turn things around at Southampton. We've seen him turn things around following a nine nil loss before. Uh, he'll have to do it again, but this is extremely damaging for the Saints. Yeah, and as I said, I guess we should talk about the the Bednarek incident. Bednarek had maybe the worst game that it's possible to have. An own goal, a mistake, uh, uh, own goal, a penalty conceded, and a red card. But the red card was rescinded after Southampton appealed. 86th minute. Um, Anthony Martial uh, has the ball in the box. Bednarek sort of comes in very slightly from the side, but doesn't touch him whatsoever. Martial embellishes with a with a dive, gets back up, and you know tells Bednarek, you know, there was no contact, there's no foul, and the pitch side mics were able to pick that up. Yet Mike Dean, being Mike Dean, and given the fact that the score was already six uh, nil at that time, uh, decided to send him off. It was such an egregious decision that Southampton submitted a formal letter to the FA requesting that Mike Dean not be in charge of any of their matches in the Premier League going forward. So another really terrible um, application of the law and VAR. Yeah, so this was not the first time that we've actually seen a club point the finger at a referee and say that they shouldn't manage one of their games again. I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, earlier this season, Nuno of Wolves, he criticized Lee Mason following their 2-1 defeat at Burnley. And he said that, uh, Lee Mason was not good enough to officiate at the top level, and he didn't want Mason to referee a Wolves game ever again. If it's one manager, then you can say it's sort of an, an outlying incident, but this is becoming a trend of Nuno, Klopp, uh, Hassenhüttl, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all saying that like these referees are not performing up to what is what should be the standard of one of the top leagues in the world, probably the most watched league in the world. And I think you see in this season how many debates have been had over like the application of VAR, what the laws are. We saw a few weeks ago that Tyrone Mings came out and he said uh, after the incident with Manchester City in which Rodri came back from an offside position to uh, dispossess him, he said that he was unclear about what you know the laws of the game were and the application of it in that instance. So I think we're seeing VAR and Premier League referees take points away from clubs and also at this stage kind of ruining the integrity of some of this products that we all enjoy so much. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're seeing is that as you know, VAR continues to make errors, it's undermining clubs and managers and players respect for referees themselves to the point where they're, you know, more open to just criticizing these people when in the past, when you didn't have VAR, you know, you didn't have perhaps as many grounds and, you know, you just kind of had to move on. But right now we're, we have a system where, you know, a supposedly more objective standard is actually proving to be subjective and insufficient to deal with even the most obvious cases. And we've, we've already talked about two of them today. Yeah. And it just ends up feeling like the point of VAR is just to confirm and to strengthen the referee's opinion rather than to provide, you know, a, a different set of eyes. And that's, I think, that is the main message that was reinforced to me after, you know, the FA didn't overturn the Louise red card because it would have meant that not only was Craig Pawson wrong, but also the VAR official who didn't overturn it was wrong as well. Um, and it just it just seems like referees protecting their own interests and refusing to, you know, admit that they were at fault whatsoever. And so that was that was really frustrating. And it's definitely been maybe the biggest talking point 
uh, outside of the pandemic in terms of the Premier League this year because it's had such a detrimental effect on not only like our viewer, the quality of, of watching games, but also, you know, Nick, as you've mentioned a number of times, it takes the joy away from the players when, you know, every single action that they do, every single goal that they score might be called back or something that happened, you know, 80 yards down the pitch two minutes previous. Do we want to move? Are we talking about Liverpool or are we just going straight to Spain? Talk about Liverpool. Yeah. So some positives for Liverpool. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about how they needed to sign center backs. They got not one, but two. Nick, what do you make of uh, Liverpool's latest bits of business? So I thought, I, I mean, I'm happy that we signed two center backs, but clearly as the Brighton game demonstrated, uh, this business needed to happen about a week or two earlier than it did end up happening on deadline day. I really like the players that we signed. Uh, ben Davies is someone who I've seen a few games of. I watched him a couple times in the championship. He's an extremely capable player. And in order to defend at a high level in the championship, you actually need to be pretty good. He, he's also left-footed and he's good at playing the ball out of the back, which is exactly which is exactly what Liverpool need right now. Uh, Ozan Kabak is someone that Jurgen Klopp's recruitment team has had an eye on for a while. We heard this summer that uh, Liverpool didn't want to pay a fee of around $35 million for him at the time, and now they're getting him for a £1 million loan fee uh, plus an $18 million buy option at the end of the season, which is really good business from Liverpool. And in my opinion... Uh, if Ozan is ready, he should be starting this weekend at against Manchester City because, boy, do Liverpool need a refresh. Absolutely. And this comes on the back of another sort of dismal defeat, a boring defeat and a dismal defeat um, midweek against Brighton. But it's good that it looks like FSG finally bit the bullet, the financial bullet, so to speak, and, and brought those reinforcements. But here's the thing. They also like... They did somehow they didn't. Yeah. Like, what was it? Ben Davies was four million or so. He was and... five, he's five hundred thousand pounds up front. Okay. And then the rest of it is installments of upwards of like two million pounds. Right. And then Kabak is initially a loan, correct? It's a one million pound loan. And also it should be said that they loaned out to Kumi Minamino for a five hundred thousand loan fee. So that fee offsets the Ben Davies fee. Yeah, but that's a whole nother weird conversation about like what 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 went so wrong with Takumi? But I don't think we we're going to get into that today. I wonder though, like whether this was sneaky, like FSG's plan all along. I don't know if that makes sense because why would you <laughs> wait? But it just seems weird that they were able to get like such good value on the last day of the transfer window. My understanding is that they wanted to wait for a few days after the Spurs game to see whether or not Joel Matip could be fit again for the rest of the season, Uh, which I think is ridiculous just considering Joel Matip's fitness history. Uh, The man is literally made out of chips at this point. Like it's so easy for him to just pull up lame with an injury. Um, Fabinho has also been missing for about a week and a half now. So I think it was just a case of look, like <laughs> we're getting to the point where even like our makeshift center backs are not ready to play games. Business needs to get done. And these are two players that FSG had on their list. that could, they could get for cheap and wrap up quick deals for whether it was business strategy or not. It seems to have worked out. Obviously I'm going to reserve my judgment until I see these guys in action. Cause I'm not going to pretend to have watched more of Preston North End's games than I have, which is zero. I mean, I'm excited for Kabak. 
I think Kabak could be a real boost to the team. He was the uh, 2019 Bundesliga Rookie of the Year. I mean, he's he's a really talented prospect. Rafa Honigstein said he's potentially one of the best defenders to come out of the Bundesliga in a while, uh, as well as a good aerial threat, which is something that I think Liverpool have been missing in the absence of Van Dijk and Matip as well this season. I think the concern for Liverpool is that they look so exhausted right now, mentally and physically. You saw James Milner play his third game in a week James Milner is someone who I think you know we all love he his work ethic is something to be admired but the man is also 34 years old the man has a lot of miles on his legs and he should not be playing uh three full 90 minute games uh in a week and I think you just saw the fatigue on Jordan Henderson the fatigue on Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson I think you're just starting to see these injuries have a detrimental effect on how Liverpool can rotate and therefore the quality of their play has dropped drastically. And these injuries aren't an excuse, right? They're a fact. Liverpool came into Brighton missing Allison, missing Mane, missing Fabinho, and obviously missing the cavalcade of other players who've been missing for a month plus. Van Dijk, Gomez, Jota, Kaita. You guys remember that Nabi Kaita plays for Liverpool? <laughs> oh my God. Etc., etc., etc. So when you have all of these players missing, A, you need to understand that, of course, it's going to have a detrimental effect on the system that your team can play. Nat Phillips is not an adept distributor of the ball in the same way that uh, Joe Gomez is, obviously, in the same way that Virgil van Dijk is. You need to adjust expectations for the circumstances that you've been dealt. So hopefully, these two center backs can help lift Liverpool and keep us in the top four, which I think is my goal for this season. Absolutely. Shall we wrap things up by talking about La Liga as we tend to do so often? <laughs> Caleb, why don't you, do we want to, let's start with the Barcelona game because amongst other crazy things that happened this last week, Barcelona played one of the craziest cup ties that I've seen in some time. This game was just wild um, from start to finish. Caleb, do you want to break down this past Wednesday? Yeah. So this was, as you mentioned, Nathan, just an absolutely bonkers game from minute zero to minute 120. Looking at the lineup, it was pretty much Barcelona's full strength 11. Sergio Berto was making his first start since coming back from injury. Unfortunately, he would have to leave at halftime uh, because he re-injured himself and looks like he will be missing the upcoming Champions League game. So that's a whole other thing. But pretty much a full strength starting 11 other than Trincao in the place of Dembele, uh, Granada, who have been quite good this year, not quite as good as last year, but still good, put out a very strong 11 and very surprisingly just took a 2-0 lead. Kennedy, the former Chelsea and Newcastle player, scored the first and then, you know, aged veteran striker Roberto Sodado scored the second. The Granada goalkeeper, Escondel, made just a truly obscene amount of saves throughout the game. Barcelona finished the game with 36 shots and 20 shots on target. But it was in the 88th minute when Barcelona were going all-out attack that Messi lofted a ball over the top, which Antoine Griezmann was able to, with a flying side kick, to hit against the post, where after it then sort of bounced off the goalkeeper and in. So now it's 2-1 in the 88th eighth minute and then finally in the 92nd minute with almost the same play Messi lofts the ball over the top 
Griezmann heads the ball across the face of goal. And Jordi Alba, who's come out of nowhere, heads it in. 2-2. We have to go into extra time now, at which point it is now 3-2 because Frankie de Jong scores after a rebound for a messy shot. But then Serginho Dest, who's also making his first appearance as they're coming back from injury, fouls a Granada player who then score a penalty. So now 3-3. Then, oh shoot, sorry. I'm going to say Griezmann scored the third. And then De Jong scores the fourth. And then finally, in the last few minutes of the game, Jordi Alba scores a searing volley to make it 5-3. And as Nathan mentioned, one of just the most insane cup ties that went from going, being a very, I think, deflationary result from Barcelona to honestly being a hugely energizing victory as we head into a very sort of like crunch time February slate of fixtures. Yeah, so this felt super cinematic (laughs) in terms of like the way that the game progressed. You know, it was 1-0 before halftime and then the second half begins and then the old rival Roberto Soldado sticks the ball in the back of the net 2-0 and then it looks like, you know, Barcelona's season is going to go from bad to worse. They're going to go out of a cup competition. They're going to have not one silverware or they're, not, they're going to be in contention for not winning the silverware again following that calamitous defeat against Athletic Bilbao. However, it's the 80th minute. Kuman once again hits the attacker spam button on his, <laughs> on his PS5 controller, and he sends in Martin Braithwaite. He sends in Dembele. He sends in all of the attackers, and, uh, <laughs> and somehow it ended up working out for him. Which is good. And I think this is Sid Lowe. I actually just published an article that I read saying that like this wasn't this wasn't an, an instance of luck. This was Barcelona sort of finding their swagger again. And I would agree with them. I honestly thought, you know, I think Barcelona have sort of flattered to deceive in the games that they have won this season. This felt very much like it could be a springboard for confidence for this Barca team who I think we've seen them suffer defeats like this in La Liga this season and have been even more deflating for them to go out to the cup in this uninspiring fashion. However, a huge redemption game for Jordi Alba, who I think Mm -hmm. has committed a lot of uh, (laughs) very, very calamitous mistakes in his recent performances in the Barcelona jersey. He gets two incredibly key goals in this game. Uh, I think a, a great performance for Antoine Griezmann, who is coming into his own in a Barcelona shirt. He's finally scoring goals and important goals at that. So yeah, I think this this can end up being a, a key victory in the course of A, Kuman's tenure as Barcelona manager and Barcelona's hunt for a first trophy since 2018. Yeah, and, and Caleb, going off of going back to that stat that you mentioned, I believe according to Opta, it was the most shots on goal that Barcelona had had in any game since the I think it was the David Villa uh Messi front line back in 2012. So uh, pretty ridiculous stats from this game. I'm at 36 total shots. That's like... That's like a FIFA. That's the game of it, FIFA. No, it really is a game of FIFA. Um, and definitely something for Barcelona to build on. I guess we can wrap things up by talking about Real Madrid, who, as Nick pointed out before we went on air today, are set to have only 12 fit senior players for their weekend matches or for, the, for their weekend match um, coming up tomorrow against... Bottom ta- bottom of the table, Huesca. I have no idea what's gone on with Real Madrid and how things got this bad, but Zidane seems to be taking it quite poorly. 
I think I respect Zidane for, I mean, you're obviously referring to his press conference today when he sort of had barbs with the media. I think the media has been, uh, just the Spanish media in general, uh, act in a way in which they like seek to undermine all of these coaches and players, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I appreciated the way Zidane was like, listen, if you have something to say about like me as a coach and how poor of a job I'm doing, just say it to my face and like we can handle it. I respected that from Zidane, who it just looks like he's just trying to get on with things as, in my opinion, his time as Real Madrid manager is winding down and they can begin a, a, a true rebuild of that club, of that team, of that squad. So I appreciated the way that he conducted things. It looks like he is focused on, on soccer, obviously just recovering from COVID. He's going to be back on the touchline. So we'll see what happens against Huesca at the weekend. 12 senior players is obviously not ideal. Uh, Eden Hazard is injured yet again. And Caleb, I'm interested to see which, what you think about all of this. Real Madrid, as I've been saying a lot this season, have just kind of hit a wall. Like They're so reliant on their old players. And as they become not available, like Sergio Ramos still having some injury problems right now. And then they're getting rid of all of their, you know, younger midfielders. Valverde has been injured a bunch this year, but they just loaned out Odegaard. Chabayos is also loaned out, but they've also sold players in recent years, like Kovacic, like Marcus Urente. I mean, there's just not a lot left with this. Like, honestly, this team looks like, like you, if you put this out as like a Real Madrid, like exhibition XI, like you wouldn't really blink. Like you'd be like, yeah, that's appropriate. Like the only difference is, I mean, Marcelo is the only one who probably looks the part having put on a few pounds, but even Eden Hazard too is injured again. And I just think that there's just not a lot of dynamism going on. And there's just not a lot of like hope for this team. And there's no one like coming up to replace any of these players. Rodrigo has been meh. Vinicius has been meh. Right? Like I literally don't know who to look to in this team. We're going to see Odrio Tzola deputizing at right back this weekend because both um, Carvajal and Vazquez are injured, but he doesn't seem like he's bringing anything. Meanwhile, you think like, wow, they really sold a player like Akraf Hakimi over the summer. They sold a player like Reguillon, who I think is better than Mendy in a lot of ways. This is where some of this has to fall on Zidane because I think like you said in the past, Caleb, he only trusts the players who've been around him for since the beginning of his time at Real Madrid. And all of these sort of new up-and-coming players like Hakimi, like Odegaard, who we recalled from loan probably a year early and has since gone on loan again to Arsenal, like Odriozola, who he <laughs> sent packing to Bayern Munich for a year. I think he, he doesn't trust all of these up-and-coming squad players, these young players, to do a job for him. And I think he hardly trusts you know, the likes of Carlos Vinicius, or not Carlos Vinicius. You hardly <laughs> trust- <laughs> I mean, he probably wouldn't trust Carlos Vinicius. He probably wouldn't trust Carlos Vinicius either. He hasn't. He's sent Luka Jovic packing back to Eintracht Frankfurt. So it's all these players that Real Madrid have tried to buy to refresh the squad. Zidane hasn't really had time for them, hasn't had the patience to help them bet in with the team. So I think that is something that he probably needs to take a look at. Uh, himself and say, what can I do better? Or what, what should I have done better in trying to integrate these new faces into his familiar Real Madrid setup? I think that about 
wraps it up. I'm sure there's going to be tons of new storylines that are going to come out of this weekend. We didn't even preview the huge game on Sunday between Liverpool and Man City. Probably for the best. Probably for the best, Nick. I am inclined to agree. Barca have Betis, uh, you know, and then we're only a week and a half away from the round of 32 in the Europa League, the, the first rounds of the Champions League knockout stages being played pending a neutral site um, for Liverpool at the very least. <laughs> yeah, but, we're going to do both legs in England. It exactly. Like- um, and so we will get into all of that on our episodes that are going to be coming up next week. But for now, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. I've been Nick Vinden. I hope you all enjoyed Nathan's new microphone. It sounds very ASMR. I'm what we're used to hearing from him. I'm kind of curious as to how it sounds. Um, it feels but, like you should just like grab a cucumber and like tap your fingers on dude, it. Dude, I hate that. I It makes me so uncomfortable. It actually makes me like really like I have a very visceral reaction to it. But if that's what the people want, then I'll give it to them. Uh, we will see you all. We will see you all next time. <laughs> did that come through? Did that come did, through? It yes, it did. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back. Corner kick ASMR. <laughs> Check out our YouTube channel. Check out our YouTube. <laughs>